The following podcast is brought to you by the Village Zendo. For more information, visit villagezendo.org. Yes, now it's working. Thank you, Kancho. And thank you, Fusho, as well. Um, I felt like I was one of those race car drivers when they pull in and all those people in the red suits turn the bolts and put the oil in the car. So it's a feeling of great privilege. And it's a great privilege to be here with all of you. I want to especially acknowledge and welcome our newcomers or newcomer-ish folks. It's an act of great bravery to come and join us when you may not know us. And uh, I don't know if you'll get any citations or certificates, but consider this citation of your bravery. And um, my name's Bokshu. I recently spent two weeks driving around the Yucatan Peninsula of Mexico, visiting ancient Mayan ruins uh, before a huge and very controversial project called the Train Maya, which is a gigantic infrastructure project, uh, is completed and makes the Yucatan even more of a tourist trap than it already is. And during my travels, I learned a few things about the people who lived long ago and still live on the Yucatan Peninsula. And when the Spanish arrived and began their conquest there in 1528, I learned that there were 800,000 Mayan people living there. And according to the estimates, in just 22 years, the population was reduced by 70%. And it kept falling until reaching its nadir of 150,000 people in about 1,700, an 80% reduction in the population. War, disease, starvation, and slavery were all the engines of this genocide. It took over 400 years for the population to actually return to its original level, which was by coincidence the year I was born. That recovery was interrupted by something called the caste wars, which extended from 1847 to 1915, during which over 30% of the Mayan population was again eliminated as they rebelled against Hispanic appropriation of their lands and their labor. As I reflect on these horrible statistics, I would like to believe that somehow during the roughly 4,000 years since the Maya people settled the Yucatan Peninsula, that we have made some sort of progress as a species as a culture or as many cultures. But in fact, according to recent events, uh, there is very little evidence to support such a belief. There has been tremendous technological advancement, but this advancement is really just a detail 
just a distraction for many, in the context of the most important thing that we are here to consider and enact in this retreat, human development. What does human development, your development, mean to you? How do you understand it? Has something, has it something to do with your being here? What is the relationship of human development to time? Do you see yourself as more developed than somebody not here? Is there anyone who is not here? One manifestation of human development that I'm quite fond of is the ability to see one's own lack of development, to see it clearly and compassionately, and upon seeing it, to not pretend what ought to be done about the lack of development, and not to rush off on some mad quest to improve oneself, to erase the lack of development with an ill-conceived program of development. Study one's impulses, habits, and tendencies. Don't fix them. Another manifestation of human development that is relevant right now is refraining from killing other people. And on that score, as I implied earlier, millennia have passed without any perceptible human development at all. An estimated 400,000 people have died in the Russia-Ukraine conflict, and perhaps another 25,000 in the Israeli-Hamas conflict. Many thousands more have been killed in Myanmar in the conflict there, which is rarely discussed, but is equally vicious. Can we compare these deaths to the 650,000 Mayan who died in the original occupation of their lands? How can we even fathom these kinds of numbers? Crude estimates, in fact, of what is actually unknowable, the toll of suffering, the toll of violence and aggression, beyond our comprehension, so bad that many of us may be tempted to simply skip over the latest headlines because we just can't take any more of it, because our minds simply cannot grasp it. What is the relationship of so many dead people to time? What is the relationship of even one being who has died to time. What is our relationship right now to this endless carnage? More than 1,100 years before the Spanish conquest of the Yucatan began, and over 800 years before the birth of Dogen Zenji, the author of our study text, St. Augustine of Hippo wrote in his Confessions, Book 11, for what is time? Who can easily and briefly explain it? 
Who can even comprehend it in thought or put the answer into words? Yet is it not true that in conversation we refer to nothing more familiarly or knowingly than time? And surely we understand it when we speak of it. We understand it also when we hear another speak of it. What then is time? If no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to him who asks me, I do not know. Yet I say with confidence that I know that if nothing passed away, there would be no past time. And if nothing were still coming, there would be no future time. And if there were nothing at all, there would be no present time. But the present, should it always be present and never pass into the past, verily it should not be time but eternity. The present, should it always be present, should not be time but eternity. That experience is freely available to all of us right here on this retreat. And the experience of there being nothing at all, and so no present time, is freely available to all of us on this retreat, and not just on this retreat. Walking down Broadway, or whatever the big street in your town might be, or just making a cup of tea, in an odd moment, it may leap upon you. The point is to be ready for what happens. We can replace the word time in Augustine's text with the word death. And with a few small tweaks, it would make even more sense than it does with the word time. For example, for what is death? Who can easily and briefly explain it? Who can even comprehend it in thought or put the answer into words? If no one asks me, I know what it is. If I wish to explain it to him who asks, I do not know. Yet I say with confidence that I know that if nothing passed away, there would be no death. And if nothing were still coming, there would be no birth. And if there were nothing at all, there would be no birth or death. But the present, should it always be present and never pass into death, verily it should not be death but eternity. Are ruins dead or alive? What is a ruin after all? We could say that ruins are expressions of time the time to quarry and tailor the stones, the time to assemble them into buildings, to build and inhabit the structures, and then, in the manner that was always done in such places, to overlay the structures with still more structures, newer ones that erase the older ones. The time to live lives and lose lives in all their myriad detail within those structures. Across many generations, and then ultimately to abandon those structures 
and the time after abandonment, <clears throat> surprisingly brief, for those structures to become inhabited again by iguanas, snakes, bats and lizards of all sorts, insects, the jungle constantly encroaching on the stones. It's really quite remarkable when you go there, you see these mounds and they're studded with stones and full of this lush vegetation and those mounds were places where people lived. The vegetation has grown so thickly that it's created these mounds of earth. So then there's the time to hack away all that growth and to remove the stones and the dirt and to number the stones, and believe me, they do. You go to these ruins and it looks like, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. This is how it's always been. But there's all these rocks with numbers on them. And somebody has actually laid them out and then put them back on top of each other, somehow figured out how all of that ought to be done. It's really quite extraordinary. And then there's a the time for privileged folks like me to go on down and check it all out and to have my opinions about how it is. My opinions. Does anyone really care about my opinions about what should be and how it should be and whether it's too much or too little? I don't care about my opinions. And reality doesn't care about my opinions. And I am reality. 72 labors brought us this ruin. We should know how we come to it. And we should appreciate how it comes to us. We should recognize that it is us. That it's stones about which lizards crawl and sunshine splays can help us to open our eyes at long last, to open our eyes to the mystery of time that we artificially carve up into centuries, into minutes. As Dogen tells us in Uji, so-called today flows into tomorrow, today flows into yesterday. Yesterday flows into today, and today flows into today, tomorrow flows into tomorrow, because flowing is a quality of time. Moments of past and present do not overlap or line up side by side. Flowing is a quality of time. We're always so concerned about the quantity of time. We don't have enough. There's too much. It's going too slowly. When is this guy going to shut up? When am I going to have lunch? It's always flowing. But what about the quality? The quality depends on each of us as both a participant and as time itself. What will so-called you do with so-called today? So-called me will try to be open fully to being here, to fully flow. Death stalks the lively ruins of the Yucatan, where I visited 14 complexes. The 15th I wanted to see was barricaded by the local people, unhappy with the amount of money that they had been paid by the government for their land and the use of it. 
That was disappointing. I briefly entertained all sorts of strategies to get around them, somehow to get inside to see the ruin that I'd planned to see. Of course I didn't, but it was interesting to watch, and that's really what we're doing here, right? We're watching all our little schemes and plans, and then withholding consent from enacting them. So 14 complexes out of over 2,000 known ruins, and even in the ones that are known and excavated, all you have to do is turn a corner, and suddenly there's mounds of stones with no organization at all. There's so much more to discover there. The traces of the ancients are everywhere, and they are surely limitless. Our traces are everywhere, and we are surely limitless if we allow ourselves to flow. Our flowing doesn't mean, means that we are not separate from anything that happens, anywhere. I felt the connection keenly while I appreciated the Mayan ruins of the Yucatan. I am the cousin and descendant of the conquistadors who massacred the Mayans. I am the cousin and descendant of the Mayans who massacred one and each other, and ultimately abandoned their ruins well before the Spanish arrived. My visit to see the construction, destruction, abandonment, and reconstruction of those places was like a criminal returning to the scene of this crime. Dogen said that snow makes a mountain. He might have said, too, that humans make ruins and that ruins make humans. All you need is time. At Chichen Itza, supposedly the ruin to end all ruins, the grounds are crammed with vendors selling merchandise of all sorts, each one selling pretty much exactly the same thing as the person two feet from them. But there was one table one small, ragged little green table, and on that table sat four devils. Three were painted red, one remained unpainted. And I couldn't help but stop and look at them. And of course, as soon as I did, the person who made them sprung into action and pounced on me. And I was subjected to many offers in descending order of price. Uh, but I ultimately had to say no because what this gentleman didn't realize was I was carrying already plenty of devils right inside of me, free. I had no payment to make. I merely had to continue on my way. So I left Chichen Itza empty-handed. As we enjoy the immense privilege of being here, of being here in every possible sense. We can remember that our, we have a direct and indirect responsibility for the violence and destruction in Eastern Europe, in the Middle East, in the Yucatan, in Myanmar, and in so many other places throughout all time and space. We are the builders and the destroyers of cities. We are the companions and also the oppressors of people flame, flowing out of flaming cities with little more than the clothes on their back. 
With so much trauma in the world, I appreciated Musha's reminder yesterday that it is not a criminal indulgence to be sitting here quietly, just sitting here. In fact, our quiet sitting is the antidote to much, to much brutality and anger in the world, refraining from the behavior that causes those conflicts. We pa- practice patient observation. We practice not getting wrapped up in the distractions of technology, not asserting our opinions, not imposing our beliefs, not doing something, anything, to build ourselves up or to take away our own pain at someone else's expense. We practice cooperation and support for our common endeavor rather than useless displays of virtue or righteousness. We are here to contemplate and reflect on the bonfire burning deep within ourselves, not to try to extinguish it. We are here to throw ourselves into the depths of our own ravine, like a drop of water, and not to try to fill that void or to ignore it. We are here to refine our ability to perceive reality exactly as it is, to tolerate reality exactly as it is, to be reality exactly as it is, from one moment flowing to the next. We are here, in the words of Dogen, to fully actualize the entire world with the entire world. As you've noticed, I've talked a bit about death. And it is interesting to notice that in Uche there is absolutely no mention of death. And I can't help to think that Dogen, as careful as he was, made that decision to omit death from a discussion of time quite deliberately. And it's a strange decision to me because I have trouble reflecting deeply on time without thinking of death. But I suppose, at a minimum, Dogen felt that he covered the subject sufficiently seven years earlier when he wrote his Genjo Koan. And in his Genjo Koan we read, firewood becomes ash and does not become firewood again. Yet, do not suppose that the ash is after and the firewood before. Understand that firewood abides its condition as firewood, which fully includes before and after, while it is independent of before and after. Just as firewood does not become firewood again after it is ash, you do not return to birth after death. Birth is a condition complete in this moment. Death is a condition complete in this moment. It's all right now. Now flows into now. Where is it? The present, should it never pass away, would be eternity. Where is it? What is its face? What is its voice? What is its manner of bowing? When time smells the armpits of time, 
What does time think? Maintain hygiene. (laughs) Firewood is a ruin and ash is a ruin. Ash, in fact, does become firewood again after having been burned. As for us returning to birth after death, I'll just take Dogen's word for it and hope it doesn't happen again. (laughs) I'd like to close my talk with some quotations from T.S. Eliot's poem, The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. And indeed, there will be time for the yellow smoke that slides along the street, rubbing its back upon the window panes. There will be time, there will be time to prepare a face to meet the faces that you meet. There will be time to murder and create and time for all the works and days of hands that lift and drop a question on your plate. Time for you and time for me and time yet for a hundred indecisions and for a hundred visions and revisions before the taking of a toast and tea. And indeed there will be time to wonder, do I dare and do I dare? Do I dare disturb the universe? In a minute there is time for decisions and revisions which a minute will reverse. It is impossible to say just what I mean. Even when I say thank you, it is impossible to say just what I mean. Thank you.